With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Magnetic grapples. The crane went out again, passing a second crane carrying a second pushpot. The second beetle-like thing was presented to the cage. It stuck fast. The crane went out for more. Major Holt came across the floor of the shed. It took him a long time to walk the distance from the security offices to the launching cage. When he got there, he looked impatiently around. His daughter, Sally, came out of nowhere and blew her nose, as if she had been crying, and pointed to the data board. The Major shrugged his shoulders and looked uneasily at her. She regarded him with some defiance. The Major spoke to her sternly. They waited. The cranes brought in more pushpots and set them up against the steel launching cage. The ship had been nearly hidden before by the rocket tubes fastened outside its hull. It went completely out of sight behind the metal monsters banked about it. The Major looked at his watch and the group about the data board. They moved away from it and back toward the ship. Joe saw the Major and swerved over to him. "'I have brought you—' said the Major, in an official voice, the invoice of your cargo. You will deliver the invoice with the cargo and bring back proper receipts. I hope, said Joe. We hope, said Sally in a strained tone. Good luck, Joe. Thanks. There is not much to say to you, said the Major, without visible emotion. Of course, the next crew will start its training immediately, and it may be a month before another ship can take off. It is extremely desirable that you reach the platform today." "'Yes, sir,' said Joe wryly. "'I have even a personal motive to get there. If I don't, I break my neck.' The Major ignored the comment. He shook hands formally and marched away. Sally smiled up at Joe, but her eyes were suddenly full of tears. I do hope everything goes all right, Joe," she said unsteadily. I—I'll be praying for you. I can use some of that, too," admitted Joe. He looked at her hand. Joe's ring was on her finger, wrapped with string on the inside of the band to make it fit. Then she looked up again and was crying unashamedly. I will," she repeated. Then she said fiercely, I don't care if somebody's looking, Joe. It's time for you to go in the ship." He kissed her, and turned and went quickly to the peculiar mass of clustered pushpots, touching and almost overlapping each other. 
He ducked under and looked back. Sally waved. He waved back. Then he climbed up the ladder into Pelican One's cabin. Somebody pulled the ladder away and scuttled out of the cage. The others were in their places. Joe slowly closed the door from the cabin to the outer world. There was suddenly a cushioned silence about him. Out the quartz glass ports he could see ahead, out the end of the cage, through the monstrous doorway to the desert beyond. Overhead he could see the dark, girder-lined roof of the shed. On either side, though, he could see only the scratched, dented, flat undersides of the pushpots ready to lift the ship upward. "'You can start on the pushpot motors, Haney,' he said curtly. Joe moved to his own, the pilot's seat. Haney pushed a button. Through the fabric of the ship came the muted uproar of a pushpot engine starting. Haney pushed another button, another, another. More jet engines bellowed. The tumult in the shed would be past endurance now. Joe strapped himself into his seat. He made sure that the chief at the steering rocket manual controls was fastened properly, and Mike at the radio panel was firmly belted past the chance of injury. Haney said with enormous calm, "'All push-pot motors running, Joe.' "'Steering rocket's ready,' the chief reported. "'Radio operating,' came from Mike. "'Communications room all set.' Joe reached to the maneuver controls. He should have been sweating. His hands, perhaps, should have quivered with tension. But he was too much worried about too many things. Nobody can strike an attitude or go into a blue funk while they're worrying about things to be done. Joe heard the small gyro motors as their speed went up. A hum and a whine, and then a shrill whistle which went up in pitch until it wasn't anything at all. He frowned anxiously and said to Haney, "'I'm taking over the push-pots.' Haney nodded. Joe took the overall control. The roar of the engines outside grew loud on the right-hand side and died down. It grew thunderous to the left and dwindled. The ones ahead pushed. Then the ones behind. Joe nodded and wet his lips. He said, "'Here we go.' There was no more ceremony than that. The noise of the jet motors outside rose to a thunderous volume which came even through the little ship's insulated hull. Then it grew louder and louder still, and Joe stirred the controls by ever so tiny a movement. Suddenly the ship did not feel solid. It stirred a little. Joe held his breath and cracked the overall control of the push-pot speed a tiny trace further. The ship wobbled a little. Out the quartz-glass windows the great door seemed to descend. In reality, the clustered push-pots and the launching cage rose some thirty feet from the shed floor and hovered there uncertainly. Joe shifted the lever that governed the vanes in the jet motor blasts. Ship and cage and push-pots altogether wavered toward the doorway. They passed out of it, rocking a little and pitching a little and wallowing a little. As a flying device, the combination was a howling tumult and a horror. It was an aviation designer's nightmare. It was a bad dream by any standard. But it wasn't meant as a way to fly from one place to another on Earth. 
It was the first booster stage of a three-stage rocket aimed at outer space. It looked rather like, well, if a swarm of bumblebees clung fiercely to a wire-gauze cage in which lay a silver minnow wrapped in matchsticks, and if the bees buzzed furiously and lifted it in a straining, clumsy, and altogether unreasonable manner, and if the appearance and the noise together were multiplied by a good many thousands of times, why, it would present a great similarity to the take-off of the spaceship under Joe's command. Nothing like it could be graceful or neatly controllable, or even very speedy in the thick atmosphere near the ground but higher it would be another matter. It was another matter. Once clear of the shed, and with flat, seared desert ahead to the very horizon, Joe threw on full power to the push-pot motors. The clumsy-seeming aggregation of grotesque objects began to climb. Ungainly it was, and clumsy it was, but it went upward at a rate a jet-fighter might have trouble matching. It wobbled, and it swung around and around, and it tipped crazily, the whole aggregation of jet motors and cage and burden of spaceship as a unit. But it rose. The ground dropped so swiftly that even the shed seemed to shrivel like a pricked balloon. The horizon retreated as if a carpet were hastily unrolled by magic. The barometric pressure needles turned. Communication says our rate of climb is four thousand feet a minute and going up fast, Mike announced. It's five. We're at seventeen thousand feet, eighteen thousand. We should get to some eastward velocity at thirty-two thousand feet. Our height is now twenty-one thousand feet. There was no change in the feel of things inside the ship, of course. Sealed against the vacuum of space, barometric pressure outside made no difference. Height had no effect on the air inside the ship. At twenty-five thousand feet, the chief said suddenly, "'We're pointed due east, Joe. Freeze it?' "'Right,' said Joe. Freeze it.' The chief threw a lever. The gyros were running at full operating speed. By engaging them, the chief had all their stored-up kinetic energy available to resist any change of direction the push-pots might produce by minor variations in their thrusts. Haney brooded over the reports from the individual engines outside. He made minute adjustments to keep them balanced. Mike uttered curt comments into the communicator from time to time. At thirty-three thousand feet there was a momentary sensation as if the ship were tilted sharply. It wasn't. The instruments denied any change from level rise. The upward-soaring complex of flying things had simply risen into a jet stream. 